This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. When I was thinking of advertisers for this podcast, well, I didn't think of a car dealership. And yet, I have two vehicles, both purposely purchased to get me to the rivers. I want to introduce you to someone, Jay Weibel. Jay grew up in Fort Collins, started kayaking the Poudre at age 12, and his first day on the Poudre this year was a snowy day in March. Jay is the owner of Fort Collins Nissan and Fort Collins Kia. Jay, what do you want to tell us about the Poudre River? The Poudre River and all rivers have a limited square footage of riparian habitat, that critical ribbon of green of trees, shrubs, grasses that briefly extend out from the riverbanks. This riparian habitat is critical for the river itself, for the terrestrial and aquatic animals, and for the beauty of our landscape. We must work to protect this sacred square footage of riparian habitat. My name is Jay Weibel. I am the owner of Fort Collins Nissan and Fort Collins Kia. I love the Poudre River and I'm working to protect it. A very, I think, intense conclusion to my PhD. In many ways, it was very rewarding to be able to do a research project that delivered results that were meaningful and could be used for management of a species on the endangered list. But at the same time, it was definitely a little bit in the hot seat and the results from my research made a lot of people upset, right? Because they'd spent some significant part of their career on this restoration program. And I was saying, hey, some of these populations that you've been using are probably not really greenback cutthroat trout. In the end, it turned out that none of them were actually greenback cutthroat trout. This show is the first of two episodes about the greenback cutthroat trout and its complicated history with humans over the past few hundred years. The greenback is considered a native fish only to the South Platte River Basin of the Southern Rocky Mountains in Colorado. The South Platte River Basin sits on the northeast corner of the Southern Rocky Mountains and captures water in the mountains from south of Denver all the way north to just across the border with Wyoming and then out eastward into the plains narrowing at North Platte in Nebraska where the South Platte River joins the North Platte River and the basin officially ends. The greenback is a wonderful species of fish that just happened to live where many European Americans settled into as they pushed west in the charge of manifest destiny. The greenback's life was forever changed. In this path, it has become the state fish of Colorado and has been on the endangered species list for about half a century. The amazing thing is, the greenback is still cruising around in the streams of Colorado. Here, we will learn about its history, its hideout, and how modern fish scientists found the last of the greenback. To best understand this show, we are going to start at the beginning and learn the basic details about this fish, and to do that, we are starting with two guys who spend a lot of time with the greenback cutthroat trout. My name is Boyd Wright. I'm an aquatic biologist. I'm specifically a native aquatic species biologist for the Northeast region within Colorado Parks and Wildlife. So would you tell us about the greenback cutthroat trout, how it lives, swims, eats, the looks, the shapes, the smells? From that standpoint, if you can just tell us about the greenback cutthroat trout. Yeah, the the greenback cutthroat trout is much like um, any of the other cutthroat trout subspecies. Uh, really a beautiful, vibrant, colorful, streamlined fish. 
um, that, that loves, you know, cold flowing water. Um, they, uh, you know, they thrive in those systems where they feed primarily on, on macroinvertebrates, um, aquatic macroinvertebrates or insects that, that drift in the stream as well as, um, terrestrial insects that fall, fall into the stream from nearby riparian vegetation. Let's see how they, how they smell. I would say they smell kind of have a sweet smell, um, sweet, sweet and salty smell to them. Uh, they, uh, when you handle them, they're super, super wiggly, tough to handle, uh, cause they just flop around and they're usually too small to get two hands on, but too big to, to handle very effectively with one hand. Like many stream fish, one really cool thing about um, trout and other stream fish is just how they really, you know, rely on an array of different habitats to carry out their life history. You know, they need the deeper pools to overwinter. Um, they need those uh, shallow uh, riffles with, you know, small gravel to, to spawn in. And they need little side marginal areas where their fry can, can rear um, and avoid uh, predation from, from other trout in the stream. How they swim, you know, uh, a life for any, for shoot, just about any stream fish, but especially trout, um, is a life of constant motion. Um, even when they're in, in calm water, uh, they're having to swim to hold their position um, in, the, in the turbulent flows of the stream. And so usually if they're in slower water, it's kind of just a slow, rhythmic, tail beat, if you will. And, uh, and then when you see them in faster water, it, it seems a lot more erratic, you know, they're just kind of fighting to hold their position. And, and usually if they're in that faster water, it's because that's where the food is. So they're kind of darting or darting around, darting up to, to get emerging insects or, or fit or insects that have fallen onto the surface or, or darting from side to side to pick up drifting uh, insects in the current. Here is the other person who works closely with a greenback, Dr. Kevin Rogers. So I'm doctor of fish science and the cutthroat trout researcher for the state game and fish agency, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Cutthroat trout are kind of generalist predators out there and occupy clean, clear streams. There's nothing generic about them, especially when they're spawning. They you know, get colored up in these really beautiful colors and uh, quite dramatic. All, all the different subspecies have that slash under their throats, the, the cutthroat, after which they're named. And that is more pronounced in some than others, but particularly during spawning season and especially in the males, that red just gets intense. It's a bright crimson that'll cover the entire belly of the fish and is really strong around the, uh, around the gills and the gill covers. Really striking fish cutthroat trout generally tend to have spots that are black spots throughout more towards the tail and not irregularly shaped usually they're more just round dots and yeah they're quite beautiful fish you know when i think about a, a trout when i think about a fish i tend to think that they're really old possibly millions of years old so can you talk to us about how old the greenback cutthroat trout is and how they made their way into the mountains, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they were here and the mountains rose up. Yeah, so like all of fish in, in North America and across the world, you know, their distribution, uh, where they live, the river basins they call home and have evolved for uh, th thousands to millions of years. 
is uh, you know the direct result of of the different climatic shifts we've had on the Earth uh, throughout the millennia, and uh, you know most more specifically, you know a lot of the the fish we have in North America and their distribution is explained by um, the receding glaciers during the the Pleistocene epoch, uh, which was marked by repeated glaciations. And so um, that's how we arrived to have these different trout, cutthroat trout subspecies unique to each of the major river basins in the state uh, is at once, you know, that was all uh, mostly underwater and connected as suitable habitat for, for cutthroat trout. And as the glaciers receded, um, it left little islands of suitable habitat for those fish uh, unique to each basin. And they're isolated from one another because the confluences of those rivers meets for way further downstream where the water's too warm for trout and too turbid. Um, and, and there's just no opportunity for them to, to mingle. So, you know, we don't know exactly how long greenbacks have been isolated to the Platte Basin, but we know it's at least 10,000 years and, and certainly um, could be as, as long as a million years. Uh, so, you know, these fish uh, as a subspecies are extremely old. The next question is, what's the historic relationship of the greenback with the, the terrestrial animals of Colorado? And I think of that in, in the sense of kind of pre-European American emergence. So maybe 200 years, 300 years ago, how are these, were, the, were these animals being eaten by, I guess, really by bear or other animals? Can you talk about that historic relationship with, um, of the greenback with the terrestrial animals? Yeah, it's really difficult to speculate on exactly what it was like two or three hundred years ago, but really fun to imagine. I think um, certainly we know today, you know, the way they interact with the terrestrial environment um, is very linked. Uh, you know, they, they rely on, on insects, terrestrial insects that fall into the creek from, you know, healthy riparian areas uh, as a major source of their food. But then they also fall prey uh, to, you know, avian predators like osprey and eagles. Um, historically, uh, when we maybe had grizzly bears, uh, you know, those might have preyed uh, more directly on, on our cutthroat trout, especially uh, when those fish, you know, similar to salmon, when they spawn, they sometimes will run up small tri tributaries where they're in really shallow water and and particularly vulnerable um, to predation. Um, and, and so, you know, it's likely that, you know, at one time they may have been an important food source for bears. Though we don't really have any evidence of like our current black bears um, preying on, on them. It's certainly possible. Can you talk about, explain, speculate on, on the sizes of the greenback pre-European engagement. Yeah, and all of our our native trout, our native cutthroats, and greenbacks, you know, they historically occupied the South Platte and its major tributaries on down all the way to the Front Range, where uh, the the streams transition from being cold water, you know, high mountain streams to to being plain streams, um, and. And certainly when uh, they were able to occupy those habitats, 
um, they they had the potential to grow much larger in those more productive systems that are found further downstream. We certainly see that with with brown trout and rainbow trout that now live in those those sections. When you get down closer to where they're getting close to the you know the the threshold the, the tolerance limit of warm water, um, that's also where they can grow the most, and there's a lot greater prey resources for them to feed on. You know, now uh, most most greenback cutthroat and and cutthroat trout in general in the state are sort of relegated to these high mountain second, third, fourth order streams um, that are small and and cold and a great habitat for these fish, but they don't have the potential to grow quite as large. So the greenback was existing in the Colorado mountains under one set of land characteristics and those characteristics changed with the emergence, with the introduction of the European Americans. Can you talk about the the changes to the streams in Colorado that happened with the emergence of the European Americans and how that affected the greenbacks. A lot of the the initial interest in in Colorado by settlers was you know targeted to you know the Front Range and and the mountains um, initially you know mining for for gold and silver and other minerals brought you know hordes of people and real you know drastic impacts to our mountain stream systems um later you know really deleterious uh, timber harvest uh, practices occurred um that was really destructive to stream habitat and then it was all kind of topped off with the introduction of non-native trout uh first rainbow trout and then brook trout and ultimately brown trout as well uh, we know that rainbow trout um, hybridize with cutthroats are the same genus, so they're capable of hybridizing. Um, and when a rainbow trout spawns with a cutthroat trout, it's no longer uh, recognized, at least for its conservation status, as a cutthroat trout. And we know the fall spawning brook trout and brown trout outcompete our cutthroat trout because they do spawn in the fall and their eggs incubate in the gravel through the winter. And then their young emerge um, in the spring, uh, just as really as the greenbacks are just starting to spawn, and their eggs and, and fry don't emerge until uh, till August typically. And by that time, the, the fall spawning you know, brook trout and brown trout, their young of the year are already doubled in size, if not greater than the young of year greenbacks that are just emerging. So they kind of have a competitive leg up from the get-go, and that's uh, that's how we know that they are able to outcompete our cutthroat trout. To add more detail about the impacts of European Americans on the greenback, here is Dick Jeffries, who was a volunteer with the Rocky Mountain Flycasters, a branch of Trout Unlimited at the Poudre River out of Fort Collins, Colorado. He serves as their conservation chair. The, the main reason for development in Colorado was extraction of minerals, gold, silver, in addition to hunting and, and trapping. And so you had all these mining camps set up. So now you need a, you need support industry for the mining camps, which means you need timber companies to come in because you got to cut timbers for the mines. You got to cut uh, railroad ties for a railroad so they can get the ore down. And that all started. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we got to feed all these people. And it's horrendously expensive to transport all this food in by rail car. So there were literally fish camps that were set up, commercial fishing camps that were set up in the mountains to do nothing but catch fish. To, it wasn't for sport. They were bringing those down because they were feeding miners and railroad people and, 
you know, everybody else that was in that support industry. So, you know, that's where you get a picture of the two guys that are standing like six feet apart with the, the pole on each shoulder. And then, you know, just fish after fish after fish is hanging from the pole. And, and those would have been all greenbacks. In the late 1800s to early 1900s, fish were being moved across the state of Colorado by humans. At that time, it was thought there were only two types of cutthroat trout in the state, one on the east side of the Continental Divide, now known as the Greenback, and the other on the west side of the Divide. It was not yet understood that there are six distinct river basins in the state that each had or have their own cutthroat, and that moving these various cutthroat subspecies into different basins would lead to hybridized fish. Additionally, other trout species from outside of the southern Rocky Mountains were being imported into the same streams in Colorado. Some of this work was being done by state fish officials, and some was done by private citizens. With more detail, here again I speak with Boyd Wright from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. From what I understand, the, the greenback was then put into these upper lakes early on to, to brood these stocks, and then they were relocated around the state. Is that correct? That is, that's absolutely correct. Really, by the early 1900s, cutthroat trout themselves were being moved all over the state um, into some of these high mountain lakes like you spoke of, and as well as streams. And that's really, you know, for the longest time until more advanced genetic techniques became available to us, was really clouding um, our understanding of, of native cutthroat trout and their distribution in the state because we had fish that were produced in Trapper's Lake and the headwaters of the White River Basin spread in every major river basin in the state. Um, and, and that brood stock eventually was stocked with uh, Yellowstone cutthroat trout, um, at the time not appreciating the difference between the subspecies. And, and so those fish were spread about. And so it really kind of re resulted in this hodgepodge of um, of trout of cutthroat trout across the state um and you know it wasn't until much later in, in the early 2000s when some of these more advanced genetic techniques became available that scientists were able to really better understand what was native where historically and and how just the scale to which fish were moved around um in in the late 1800s and early 1900s um you know, some of the historical records um, that were dug through uh, revealed that, you know, 29 million fish were stocked out of the Grand Mesa Lakes from 1899 to 1909, and 26 million fish were stocked out of Trapper's Lake from 1914 to 1925. And like I said, you know, these fish were spread far and wide um, across the southern Rocky Mountains into all the major river basins. So that's 54 million fish. That seems like a lot of fish. Is that a lot of fish considering the amount of water that it's put into and the reach that it's outside of its original habitat? I mean, is that an, in, that, that it must be an influential amount of fish. It's absolutely an influential amount of fish. Um, it seems like a lot of fish when you think about just at that time period, what they had to do to produce those fish and spread them around. It's really mind blowing to think about, um, but uh, yeah, I'd say it's a lot of fish and it certainly was enough to make a difference because, you know, we can still find the legacy of those stocking efforts on the landscape today. In fact, the majority of our cutthroat trout in the South Platte Basin, at least, were the result of those stocking efforts. What years are we talking about that this that these 54 million were, were pushed around? 
1925. How were those fish moved around the state? You know, at that time, they were, were transferring fish by railroad, by horse and carriage, in these old, you know, tin milk jugs, and they could they could move eggs that way. Uh, you know, much of what we do today to spawn fish for our management practices is based on techniques that were developed during that time period, and, and during which they learned that you know once you get a fertilized egg and it's had an hour to sit in the water, it's pretty resilient to being transferred around. And so that's precisely what they did. And then there was also, you know, hatcheries often associated with these wild spawning operations where the fish could then go and, and be raised to, to little fry and, and then moved around in a similar fashion and, and stocked out as fry. And was it critical to keep the water cold in the transferring of those fish? Yes. Yeah, it was critical to keep the water cold. You know, these trout are a cold water species and, and the eggs, the fry, the adults um, all have their their upper limit that they can survive for temperature. Um, but it, it's cold for all of those life stages. What does Fort Collins Kia offer? Kia builds cars and SUVs that are turbocharged and fuel efficient with hybrid and electric motors. Kia has earned several automotive awards to include best initial quality rating. Jay, what does this mean? Good question. What is best initial quality rating? Basically, during the first 90 days of new car ownership, initial quality is determined by the number of problems experienced per 100 vehicles. A lower score reflects higher quality. Kia has the lowest score and the least amount of problems for all car manufacturers. That's why they offer a 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Also, Kia offers several hybrids and electric vehicle options with great fuel efficiency. For example, the Kia Nero Hybrid. It is rated at 52 miles per gallon with its crossover design is very practical. It starts at 25,710 for people who want affordable and practical cars. This Kia Nero can be that. After the years of all this pressure on the greenback, fish managers in Colorado arrived at the conclusion that this fish was extinct, gone, and yet that was not true. The greenback was found to still exist and persist in the streams of Colorado. With the concern for true extinction looming, fish managers did embark on a path to restore the greenback to more habitat placements in the state. That program hit a major snag when new methods of research came on the scene. Here again is Dr. Kevin Rogers from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Basically, in the 30s, they thought this fish was extinct. I mean, basically, with all the development that was going on on front-range streams, mining and pollution and grazing and you know, just a whole litany of assaults and uncontrolled fishing. People were using dynamite to harvest uh, fish from streams and stuff. So basically, as a result of those activities, it was thought that the greenback was extinct. And then in the 50s, fellow down at CU in Boulder had discovered some fish in Como Creek, a couple little streams down by in that Boulder watershed that he thought were unusual and collected and preserved specimens from that. And when Dr. Banky at Colorado State University was doing work in the 60s on cutthroat trout, he verified that indeed those were the long-lost native. And so that sort of started out the recovery 
the first recovery effort for the subspecies and and a ton of work was spent looking around the front range and it was felt like they found a handful of other populations that they also thought were pure and those populations were used for the recovery effort and it really was an impressive effort really ended up being one of the shining stars of the endangered species act because you know here we had this fish that we thought was extinct they found a few populations and used those populations to use in reestablishing new populations and we were at the point in the early 2000s where we were in the process of delisting the species entirely uh, when Jessica Metcalf at the University of Colorado in Boulder did her PhD work on the genetics of the fish and found out that about half of the populations used in the recovery effort uh, actually had genetic fingerprints similar to population we have on the west side of the divide in Trapper's Lake. So that obviously was a huge realization that, in fact, a bunch of these fish used in the recovery effort weren't what we thought they were. And Dr. Jessica Metcalf, I have a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Colorado. I am currently um, an associate professor at Colorado State University, where I study microbiomes or the microbial ecology of different environments. My graduate work, however, was on conservation genetics or wildlife genetics, which is when I studied the greenback cutthroat trout. Can you just pick up the story and tell us what happened with your research? So when I started working with initially U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, mostly focused on cutthroat trout populations in Rocky Mountain National Park. The questions were more around, of the cutthroat trout populations, which ones had rainbow trout hybridization, which ones had hybridized with Yellowstone cutthroat trout from like Montana area, which were introduced at different times as well into the park. And so my initial work was really focused on sort of identifying those hybridization events, which were not too hard to do because there's enough evolutionary history between, for example, Yellowstone cutthroat trout and greenback cutthroat trout or cutthroat trout and rainbow trout to do that fairly simply with genetics. But another part of my research to make it sort of more PhD level was to describe sort of the evolutionary history and the biogeography, so how the genetics sort of play out on the landscape of cutthroat trout in Colorado. So as most people, particularly if you're into rivers, know we have quite a few different distinct river basins in the state of Colorado, and we have this one huge geographic important feature, the Continental Divide. The Continental Divide, that magic high ridge connecting all the highest ridges in the state so that water falling on the west side of the divide flows to the Gulf of California and the Pacific Ocean, and water falling on the east side of the divide flows to the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. On the west side of the divide in the state of Colorado, there are three river basins, the San Juan, the Colorado, and the Yampa. On the east side are the Arkansas, the Rio Grande, and the South Platte, which is the original home of the greenback cutthroat trout. And so... When we think of cutthroat trout, sort of they, their sister species is rainbow trout, and they sort of diverge somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And at some point through various glacial cycles, cutthroat trout were able to move to establish in new drainage basins. And 
made it all the way to the eastern slope of the continental divide in Colorado and New Mexico and a few other areas. And so so this this evolutionary history should be reflected in the genes. Populations that are currently mixing should ha- be very similar to each other genetically. Populations or species or subspecies that have been isolated since the last glacial cycles, there should be some di- some differences in their genes because of that. And so that was really what I was after. To achieve that, we sampled populations from around the state that were kind of thought and considered native cutthroat trout populations, and we tried to get both greenback cutthroat trout as well as Colorado River cutthroat trout from the western slope, and we sequenced the DNA of some of the genes, which we used then to reconstruct the, the evolutionary history and look at them. I started to get these DNA results, and when we kind of put them on the map, they really didn't make very much sense. We were getting, you know, one population that was right, you know, within walking distance to another population that looked like they haven't mixed since, you know, before the last glacial cycle. We were getting these weird patterns for what were supposed to be sort of the native cutthroat trout population, where what we really should have seen most clearly is that cutthroat trout on the east side of the continent divide in the South Platte and the Arkansas River drainage should have been really different than the cutthroat trout on the west side in the Colorado River, the Yampa, and the drainages over there. And so instead, what we saw on the map is this kind of checkerboard pattern. We could see there were some, there were two really prominent different sort of subspecies kind of lineages, but they weren't separated by the continental divide as they should have been. And so that was kind of our first red flag of, okay, something, you know, something odd is going on here. And that was sort of the first paper that we published. And so that kind of wrapped up the first Part one of the story sort of made it clear that what the populations that were being used in the restoration program, at least some of those probably were not greenback cutthroat trout. Dr. Jessica Metcalf performed two vital research studies about cutthroat trout in Colorado. You just heard about the first study from 2007. The second study was published in 2012, involves museum samples of greenback cutthroat trout and ancient DNA extraction. I did my first postdoc in um, ancient DNA. I went to the Australian Center for Ancient DNA and learned the techniques for recovering fragmented and low abundant DNA from dead things. And as part of that, I followed up on what I knew were a set of museum samples that existed for cutthroat trout from the late 1800s that sort of predated what we knew was the massive amount of propagation and stocking of cutthroat trout. And so we felt that pretty confident that if we could get DNA from samples before 1900, that they're probably represent the native like lineage or or genetics from that drainage. Can you tell us the story about going to the museums and how you're doing the work and and then what you find and and how you capture that research? I was able to go and collect cutthroat trout 
fish samples from the Smithsonian, which was obviously a special treat. Um, on another trip, we went to the Harvard Museum. And so I took a little bit of gill sample. I took a little bit of just kind of general skin sample and then a little bit of like fin sample. And these were importantly fish that we believe were preserved in ethanol and not formalin. Formalin trick samples are much more difficult to get slash can be impossible to get DNA DNA out of. And so then I put those in fresh ethanol in a little tube and I did not do the DNA extraction there because the whole idea was then to do the DNA extraction in a facility or in a way that we could be confident that we weren't getting contamination from modern cutthroat trout samples. So I wouldn't for example, bring them back to the lab where I'd done the modern cutthroat trout work, but we did this in a completely different lab in a building where we'd never had modern cutthroat trout samples or DNA and then follow sort of the standard ancient DNA protocols that help prevent contamination from modern samples that just have a lot more DNA abundant in them. Um, and so that's kind of what that looked like. Genetic study. Museum samples from some of the great world collections, ancient DNA extraction. What is the outcome of all this work? When we got those data, it really clarified the picture. So our guess is we were on the right track with chapter one, but we didn't quite have it, the story figured out. And I, there was no way we could have figured out the story. And so... From that, those museum samples, we kind of got a little bit of a different picture that made a lot more sense in terms of evolutionary history and biogeography, where we really saw pretty distinct patterns of each drainage that was really isolated, like the South Platte, had its own subspecies of cutthroat trout that had a very distinct genetic signature. Again, here is Boyd Wright from Colorado Parks and Wildlife to outline the new understanding of the various cutthroat trout in the six river basins of the state of Colorado. In the South Platte River, we have what we're calling the Greenback. In the Arkansas River, um, there was historically the yellowfin cutthroat. In the Rio Grande River Basin, you had the Rio Grande cutthroat, which are still present today and, um, and part of their own conservation uh, plan. And, this, and we learned from that study that the San Juan River Basin had its own unique uh, lineage of, of cutthroat. And then in the upper Colorado River and Gunnison Basin had its own unique lineage. And then uh, the Yampa and White River Basins had their own unique lineage. In addition to learning about the six cutthroat trout subspecies, the other vital piece of information that came out of Dr. Metcalf's research was the clarity around what fish was actually a 100% pure greenback cutthroat trout. Because, if you recall, that is what this is all about. Restoring the greenback cutthroat trout and making sure they have the totally pure version of this fish and not the hybridized version because they were originally and unintentionally restoring a hybridized greenback. There was this one population that was in the Arkansas River drainage, Bear Creek, that had a really distinct genetics, and we didn't really know what to make of it. It was a one-off population. It looked really different, um, and we sort of kind of left it, you know, as we don't really know what that is. And it turns out 
it became very clear from the museum samples that that was the lineage native to the South Platte, so what we would call the greenback cutthroat trout. And it only existed in modern times in this one location outside of its native range. So something that we could not put together from samples of modern fish. We were only able to do that because of the museum samples. This 100% pure greenback cutthroat trout has been hiding out up Bear Creek for 100 plus years like a Jedi hiding deep in the galaxy. How, you asked, did this happen? Boyd Wright, Dr. Jessica Metcalf, and Dr. Kevin Rogers explain. The one that was native to the South Platte River Basin was currently found in only one creek, and that's Bear Creek in the Arkansas River Basin. And, and in fact, that population was out of its native range and was moved there uh, in the late 1800s um, by uh, an industrious entrepreneur who was uh, sat at the foot of Pikes Peak and was wanted to create fishing opportunities for those who traveled up to Pikes Peak. There was a hotelier who established a place in that area, and the best guess is that the closest source of cutthroat trout would have actually been in the South Platte, so it made a lot of sense. And so he probably picked up a barrel of, you know, fish from the stream or something like that, brought them back, dumped them in Bear Creek. The area of Bear Creek was historically fishless, so it didn't have a cutthroat trout there. And thankfully, somehow, these fish survived 100 years. And it looks like that in 1872, this guy had homesteaded up Bear Creek on the north side of Pikes Peak and had built a fish pond there and had stocked fish from the South Platte Basin into that pond. And that pond lies in a drainage that's above a big waterfall. And so that protected that stream from invasion by non-native trout and has allowed those fish to persist for 130 years above those falls. And so the museum samples are what allowed us to really come back and say, okay, this Bear Creek lineage, this, you know, this one population that had this distinct lineage, that is actually greenback cutthroat trout. Now what? They have the perfect greenback, and the story continues. Listen to the next episode about the Greenback Recovery Program with all its twists and turns, which is available right now. Content editing and production is done by me, Sam Carter. Audio production is done by Ezekiel Buhanda. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. A base and size thanks goes out to all of the guests on the show, including the silent ones. We're always looking for more great show topics and leads on river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Worm and grasshopper, baked Duncan and minnows and... Oh, my dog is vomiting. Best vehicle I ever owned. Could go anywhere. I hate to call it a marriage, but everybody develops a relationship of some kind with the river. Did anyone say there's something fishy going on here? This is Jay Weibel, owner of Fort Collins Nissan and Fort Collins Kia. Why do I enjoy river boating and why do I let myself get beat up while boating? For me, it keeps me humble and tough. It revitalizes me. I feel better.
I want to personally thank you for supporting the Poudre River and for listening to these shows. Let's protect the Poudre.